Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? How you doing? Uh, week five, right? Something like that. What day is it? What day is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, when you celebrate holidays, the idea is that everything stops for a little bit of time and you spend really quality time with your family. And it's really great. And when your fucking day to day feels like that, Holidays are really, really tedious. Yeah, it's like, oh, this holiday, same as yesterday. Not special in the least. That sucks. Yeah, and I could have probably, like, not have mentioned that Easter was coming up to the kids, which would have been really cruel of me, but, like, they have no concept of what's going on in the world either. Um, But (laughs) I... I decided that it'd be really cruel to do that. So, yeah, so we had to do Easter, which was fun, but very strange. And, like, it's already a holiday that I don't spend with my extended family. It's a holiday I I spend with friends um, who came over this morning at, like, 7, knocked on the window, and and waved through their masks (laughs) at the kids. (laughs) Aw, that's sweet. Yeah, but um, it's tedious. Yeah, I mean, we did not tell I I you know I live with my cousin and um my nephew is over uh every once in a while he has no idea it's Easter but (laughs) the the dog that lives with us has come to figure out that things have changed oh (laughs) yeah and um you know I never had pets growing up I don't really understand pets and before this year of living with a dog I would have said that I don't like dogs but now I've come to like this one dog very much. And so maybe I like dogs. I don't know. Anyway, I like this dog. And I know, I know. It's a lot for me to say that. Nora's (laughs) known me for a very long time. Oh, man. I've sent Ashcon pictures of this dog to be like, I get it now. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Ashcon being a mutual friend of ours who loves dogs uh, and has tried to get me to love dogs also uh, for a long time and uh, failed. But here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so this dog now knows that something is up. (laughs) She's, she has like become like, she's just like, what is going on? She's her, her eyes are always questioning. She's just like, what the fuck is happening? Why aren't you guys leaving this house? (laughs) Like you're just here all the time and I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to look forlornly out this window because I know that something has changed and y'all are sad sometimes and I don't get it. (laughs) So... (laughs) She's this like for the last few weeks, she was like, oh, vacation. Cool. You're here all the time. And now she's like, no, something is fucking up. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's funny. Wow. That's um, yeah, it's nice, I guess, uh, to have these kinds of things break up the monotony because. um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been really like going through this whole Easter kind of thing, saying to myself, okay, okay, it's not so bad. Christmas very well could be (laughs) in the same situation. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well do Christmas tomorrow. Just get it all done in one shot. Oh, good point. (laughs) Good point. I mean, one of my kids was singing every Christmas song that they could think of to the words of bunny, 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 hop, hop, hop. So, I mean... Yeah, what's the difference to them? Dear 
God. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't envy the parents sometimes. Should we have people to thank? I'm sure we have people to thank. Yes, we have a couple of folks to thank. I want to thank um, everybody for the positive feedback that we've gotten. I know that there's some messages I need to uh, respond to. I've been kind of taking my time with responses to, to people, I think, on all of my various platforms. So um, hang tight. I will definitely reply to you folks. But uh, for folks who have um, who've changed their donation or who started to, deno- to donate to us for the first time ever, thank you so much uh, for your support, specifically to Conrad, to Hannah, to Dominique. Um, we really appreciate uh, you folks, and we appreciate everybody that's uh, been so generous uh, to us. Beaut. What do we have to talk about today? So many things. Can I just, before we move into it, just yell about something just real quick? <laughs> yeah. Doug Ford's approval rating is 83%. Yeah. Ontario, what the fuck? <laughs> I just need people to, to remember the millions of dollars that he cut from public health and his plan to outsource much of the healthcare system that was announced not long after he won his election. And it, it feels like what's happening is that there's such a, like a desperation to, to view uh, someone as taking a leadership role in, in this weird time of life that we find ourselves in that just his presence (laughs) his daily presence and live briefings is enough for people to be like oh he's doing well but I just need people to connect the dots between how things are bad and what he did (laughs) okay because all of that is connected and we cannot forget that this man has made some very fucked up decisions that have had a, a an effect on our ability uh, in Ontario to respond uh, to a pandemic and is literally responsible for people becoming ill and dying uh, from this, this disease. And uh, like, we cannot forget that when we're reporting or reading reports about what Doug Ford has said today, because talking is not the same as doing. And what he has done has uh, created the conditions for a lot of the terrible things that we find ourselves and our families and our friends in today. So that's my rant. I just can't believe 83%. That's just, come on, y'all. Like, pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) But Sandy, it's not the right time to be divisive and to do politics. Okay. (laughs) Rant two. (laughs) All of this (laughs) is politics. Every single piece of this is political. Any response to it is political. We will always have a choice to respond to this with our principles rooted in, you know, uh, uh, helping as many people as possible helping the most destitute, helping only the wealthy, uh, only focusing on economics. Like those are all principal decisions that have to do with politics. Any decision that is made is going to be a political decision. So this is all politics. And sure, some of it might be divisive, but perhaps that's exactly what we need right now. Because (laughs) if someone is like, hey, 
I support the economy and making sure that big business survives over the little guy. I want to be divided from said person in the discussion that happens in the in the public sphere. So fuck that person. Happy to be divided from them. Call me divisive if that's mm. what you need. But this like we need to have those discussions uh, publicly to decide what's right. And quite frankly, most of what's happening right now isn't enough to help uh, the people on the ground who need it the most. And that is a political decision. And that political decision isn't being made, even though I bet you most of the people who are uh, living in Ontario would support that decision being made, which means we need to have a political discussion about it. That's just kind of how it works. Absolutely. As you say, like, pay attention and be critical. Like, I'm, it's, it's really frustrating. And, and it's also a time where you're seeing the lack of journalism laid bare. I mean, we don't have critical journalism really in Canada in the best of times. And right now it seems like journalists have been pretty much reduced to playing stenographer. And, you know, in journalism, there's the folks that have to report those details and report them accurately and, and be at every single press briefing of the premier and to say what he says. But then there's supposed to be people who also, you know, look at what he's saying and, and go through the numbers. And there's there's some of that happening. But I mean, Ontario with a weak opposition in the Ontario NDP, it's like folks like, you know, I know it's not comfortable right now to be critical because we want to assume that people are doing their best. But I mean, he's the premier of Ontario. Um, I mean, there's ways that he could be doing things better, like, I don't know, more testing, for example. (laughs) Just to start, (laughs) just to start of an example. Uh, Yeah, the the testing, the data in Ontario just doesn't seem to be right for those who are, uh, you know, the, the epidemiologists who've been telling us that they don't seem correct because the testing uh, is insufficient um, and not right. So we don't actually have accurate numbers about what's going on in Ontario. And that is just not good enough right now. That seems basic. Yeah. Yeah. Super basic. So, so this episode is not going to necessarily be about Doug Ford, although I'm sure that we will have an opportunity to speak about Monsieur Ford again. But we wanted to take you've through two very different issues um, and both are really going to be quite difficult I think in their details Um, and so we're going to start with a conversation about long-term care facilities which have been hit the absolute hardest it seems in this um, in this outbreak and uh, we'll also talk about how somehow we're all locked down and we're not living our normal lives but Who's living their normal lives right now? The cops. <laughs> they're living their normal lives <laughs> and they're shooting people. So that will be the second part of the of the show. Mm-hmm. Okay, long-term care facilities. Man, I, you know, it's just really... I mean, you, we've talked about this a couple times on the show already. In particular, Nora has mentioned how um, through this crisis, we see um, a lot of the problems that have already existed with long-term care facilities. And, uh, you know, like that, you know, it's just something that I guess I just want to underscore after talking to uh, my mother this week who works at a long-term care facility. Uh, and one of the problems uh, that 
you know, I haven't heard spoken on the news and didn't actually think of myself until uh, having this conversation with my mom is that a lot of the support staff in uh, long-term care facilities are paid so shittily uh, that most of them work in two jobs, actually. And uh, the danger that that poses to both the patients in a long-term care facility uh, and the other staff in a long-term care facility is really, really difficult. And so uh, you have right now a problem uh, where uh, the staff at long-term care facilities aren't necessarily being tested. Certainly they're not where my mother's working, (laughs) okay? The patients are, but the staff are not, which seems like a weird place to a weird decision, political or uh, a weird policy decision to make. And people are moving from workplace to workplace uh, in a workplace that might be high risk to a workplace that may not be high risk and potentially, potentially spreading what's happening here. And that is all a result of poor economic decisions uh, that precede uh, this global pandemic. God, what if we just paid people what they were worth? (laughs) And not to even discuss it that way, like, because that's what they were worth. But that doesn't make any sense. What if we just paid people what they needed (laughs) to live? You know what I mean? Like, at the very least, what if we just started there and they didn't have to work two jobs? But right now, a lot of people are. And, uh, uh, And it's because they must. Yeah, there's another dimension to this as well, of course, which is that long term care the quality of long-term care is, I mean, really bad in every part of this country in terms of the amount of funding that these institutions have to be able to operate. So obviously that shows up in how staff are treated and paid. That also shows up in how much care every resident gets, uh, in how much attention they get from medical professionals or from a doctor, if there is even a doctor who is on call within every facility or, or not. Uh, and, and of course, Ontarians will remember that there was a serial killer who was able to murder people in long-term care facilities in uh, London and Stratford a couple of years ago. And so, you know, this, this, this outbreak happened. And one thing that was clear from the start was that residents of long-term care facilities, whether that is elderly people, people with disabilities, elderly people with disabilities, are going to be the most vulnerable uh, to the coronavirus. And the first outbreak that North America heard about was was in Washington state. Not that long after uh, the the big ground zero within Canada was British Columbia at the Lynn Valley Care Center. Now, British Columbia has taken a lot of steps to flatten the curve. And a lot of uh, experts have, have are agreeing that, that BC has managed to flatten the curve. And even in spite of that, uh, we're recording this on, on Sunday, on, on uh, April 12th. April 12th? I don't know. Is it April 12th? <laughs> it is wow. April 12th. Okay. And so we've got CTV News reporting that, you know, even in the province that seems to be dealing the best uh, with um, these outbreaks, uh, 10 residents at Harrow Park Centre in Vancouver's West End have died um, as a result of having COVID-19. So 10 within one Jesus. residence. Uh, folks will probably have also heard about how many people died, uh, more than a third of the residents in a, in, a, in a long-term care facility in Bob Cajun, Ontario. And where I am in Quebec, uh, the outbreaks have been horrific. So let me just read for you the numbers that are the highest. 
So in Quebec, these these homes are called CHSLD. Okay. And so the CHSLD of Saint-Dorité in Laval has had 16 people die. The Centre d'hébergement Notre-Dame-de-la-Mericie has had 13 people die. The Centre d'hébergement de la Salle has had seven people die. The Centre d'hébergement Alfred de Rocher has had five people die. The CHSLD La Flèche has had 20 people die. And the CHSLD La Pinière has had 10 people die. Now, this is a mix of private and public facilities. And none of those, that list, is as horrific or as high as the long-term care facility called the Heron, Le Heron, in in Dorval, where 31 people have died, and not all of those uh, deaths have been attributed to COVID-19. In a story that was first written by the Montreal Gazette, um, their family members of people living there, people living there themselves, and I think it sounds like they probably had one, uh, at least one person who worked for the facility blow the whistle, said that the conditions look like this is what the Gazette said, a concentration camp where residents were in their own, and they had soiled themselves, they hadn't had diapers changed, catheters were overflowing. There was at least three people dead in their beds in the residence. And, um, and the people that were alive were so dehydrated, many of them, they couldn't even speak. Oh my God. I mean, I saw a story about this facility. It was an English story and an English uh, publication. I can't remember uh, which one, but it didn't go into that level of detail. And I kept thinking to myself, why are they having a police investigation of this particular um, long-term care facility? Because that was definitely part of the story. I thought to myself, it should be a public health investigation as to why the, the deaths have been so high, because, of course, the story was reported as though it was related to, to COVID. And I'm sure some of those deaths are related to COVID. But what you're talking about here seems like uh, not related to COVID, but would certainly be uh, worsened by, by, uh, uh, by COVID-19. Yeah, like testing is still happening um, because this is all breaking. Um, but uh, not all of those deaths are, are from COVID. But of course, there's the spin out effect of the overstressed healthcare system, people not getting the care that they need, this uh, illness traveling so quickly. And, and maybe I should pause here. Like a lot of people have wondered why has Quebec been so hard hit by this? And, you know, there's a lot of kind of theories uh, of, of why. Um, the theory that I, I think has uh, a lot of uh, weight is that, you know, we had March break at the first week of March, whereas in Ontario and British Columbia, other parts of, of Canada, it was the third week of March. Oh, interesting. And so by the time we got to the third week mm-hmm. of March, March break was cancelled, right? Quote, unquote, everyone is in lockdown. I mean, I was traveling on March break. I was in the United States. I saw you just before March That's break. Right. And, uh, and no one knew to the extent um, that this was circulating. And so in Montreal specifically, you know, it, it actually can link different outbreaks to different social events that were happening in the United States where people went to the U.S. and then they came back to Montreal. Um, but it seems like, you know, unsurprisingly that the first thing that people did when they were away for a week was what? They went to visit family in long-term care. Right. And the other weird, and so that, of course, like laid the seeds for an outbreak that uh, already was going to be made worse by the state of long-term care in the province, which is really bad, but I'm not sure it's worse than Ontario. I mean, Ontario's got a lot of problems in its system as well. It's just that the timing was so bad with, with March break and because the system is so is so poorly funded. But I should mention that there was also a decision made by by the government to not allow people to visit 
loved ones who live in these in these uh, residences, right? And so the first decisions that were made in a lot of provinces were what? Shut the school system down and don't allow people to visit in old age facilities. And when this was announced, CBC Montreal had a conversation with a woman whose husband was living in in one of these in one of these facilities and she said that if I don't go and visit, he will die because I perform so much service for him and in in his care that no one will do this, that there will be neglect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly the side effect of when you stop loved ones from being able to see and engage in the care that the system has come to rely on, that it's not too surprising that we're seeing these really horrible situations emerge. I mean, these numbers are staggering. That's so awful. That is so awful. And people are dying alone. That is so awful. Yeah. There's another dimension to this as well, of course, which is the question of private versus public. And and so you mentioned that your mom works in a facility where like most people have to work at more than one facility. That's the case in Quebec as well. People work uh, in many facilities to, to come up with a, a, a paycheck that's as decent as it can be. Mm-hmm. In the case of Heron, I don't even know if I can make you guess. So this is a private facility. Guess how much they paid to live there. Oh, how much they pay to live there? Uh, 25000 a year? 30000 Oh, good guess. Um, so I have a monthly breakdown, six to $10,000 a month. What? Yeah, yeah. So you're, you guessed a little high, but I mean... No, I guessed low. Right. I think... <laughs> Bad at math. It's ten thousand a month. Yeah, that's two thousand dollars a month. Right. <laughs> My God. <Nora>. Yeah, <laughs> Nora. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my God. Yeah, six to ten thousand dollars a month. So this is not one of these public facilities that also is is operating on a on a shoestring uh, public budget, but a private one that people pour their life savings into to have the chance at a decent life. When you're in your 70s, your 80s, your 90s, your Jesus. 100s. Yeah. So this oh is a, a home that's owned by a company that's called Katasa. Katasa, unsurprisingly, is in the real estate world. Um, they have built commercial buildings. They build residential buildings. They have several retirement buildings they have, uh, and they're all across Quebec. They have. Uh, oh, do they build residences too? <laughs> I'm not Is there that yet. The thing? I'm not there yet. Oh, fa- so before we started, Nora was like, "I gotta, I have a thing that I'm gonna rely and reveal on air. I know that this is it. Tell me more. Go on." I think I've heard of this company, actually. Okay, interesting. So so they have nine long-term care facilities in, uh, or retirement residences in, in Quebec. And um, the news is reporting that at least one other facility has a case of COVID-19. Not too surprising because there's hundreds of cases in long-term care facilities across the province. And as as you said, Sandy, that the, the owners, uh, that this has been turned into a criminal investigation. The owners have told CBC Montreal that they had asked the local uh, health uh, group called the Sius in French for help and that they didn't get the help that they had asked for. But this is a company that that I mean, they're in business to house people. And so, yeah, their most recent project is a project called 
Theo, or Theo, which is the state-of-the-art private residence for students at the University of Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Knew it. Yeah, I have definitely heard of this. Yeah. So they have not been open very long. I tried to find on their website how much a residence room costs because I thought that maybe that would be an interesting comparison. I know that long-term care is expensive. I am closer to the residence age, so I'm like, okay, let's see. Unsurprisingly, you can't find it on their website. Uh, Thanks to the Reddit thread uh, asking how much this costs, I got some numbers. So a room can run from, it's between $800 and $1,000 in Ottawa, near the University of Ottawa. That's pretty expensive. Um, You can get a shared room for for less than that as a student. Um, And one guy on Reddit was saying he pays $850 for a shared room with two other people. What? <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, the the story of coming out of the Heron uh, residence is just so horrific. And it's, it's really easy to dismiss, I think, as being wrapped up into all of the problems that exist within long-term care. But I think that layered on top of this all is that when you have for-profit housing people, uh, especially when it's people who are vulnerable, uh, I mean, it, you, you, well, you can't. It can't be for profit. Uh, even being private is a problem because you absolutely need to have health and social services oversee these situations and not have uh, a world where family members can't get a hold of their loved one. They're not allowed to visit because of ordinance from the government. And then they find out either through the press or because they were able to, to get in there somehow uh, the absolute horror that is playing out in in the home of, of their loved one. I mean, it's just so horrible. And I think that this is really the story of how Canada is dealing with the coronavirus is the is the way we're treating these folks. Jesus. So it's it's just so terrible. It's just, you know, I was listening to this podcast uh, this weekend, uh, a new podcast. I think it's a New York Times podcast. I'm not sure. It's called Six Feet Apart. Um, and uh, they were talking to a rabbi and a priest this weekend about um, the difficulties of, of dealing with a lot of um, people who are dying in nursing homes uh, and in and in hospitals. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of them were focused on on nursing homes because those are where the most numbers of death are coming from. And they're and they're uh, communicating with family members you know, over Zoom or over uh, FaceTime or whatever other social media things exist because they can't preside over funerals right now. Um, And just what a lonely experience it is already um, uh, as a faith leader providing um, support uh, to a family who has uh, a loved one in a long-term care uh, facility. Um, at the best of times and how much more mm-hmm. lonely and difficult and uh, traumatizing it is uh, for a family, for that particular loved one who is in a long-term care facility right now, uh, who is dying alone um, under such terrible conditions, um, often uh, because of things that are preventable. And it is it is now uh, that it is so important for us to take a look at what's happening in these facilities and to be aware 
Uh, and to make sure that these things don't repeat themselves, um, we should be changing uh, policy and the way that we're, we are addressing how we take care of people that we love right now um, because we can't come out of this with the message being that it's okay that this happened and um, it is fine to continue as we had been uh, with inadequate care being given to our loved ones in long-term care facilities. That can't be uh, one of the things that we come out of here, uh, out of this situation with. And so it's so important for us to uh, sound the alarm that, you know, quite frankly had been sounded before with uh, a number of different cases uh, of things that have gone wrong at long-term care facilities. Um, you know, one of which was uh, the, the, wet law for killings. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that's been on my mind. It's just like already lonely and how much more lonely and torturous it must be in a place, uh, you know, like one of these private facilities that you've mentioned where no one actually gives a shit about you. Yeah. I, I read the death notices every weekend in, uh, Le Soleil and in, uh, in the Globe and Mail, and it's really wild how many more there are. There have been in the last week and two, two, two weeks. Um, yeah, and and I don't think that we've come as a as a nation even close to understanding what this all means. It was very strange, actually. Like the the morning of the anniversary of the Humboldt bus crash, um, so that was this past week. Uh, Justin Trudeau like started his morning briefing by talking about that and how he'd placed a hockey stick on the on his cottage door to remember them or or you know in the way that they that they had done that two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was just struck by like how in 2020 death has become so much different than where we were in 2018. Hmm. To start yeah. the year, to start the year off with so many Canadians dying in the Ukrainian air disaster, and then to move right into this, where we're having, I mean, like the number of of deaths per old age facility that I just read, it's just so horrible. Um, we we yeah, we don't understand this, and you know, I was wondering, like, is is it just the case that that long term care in North America is so bad? And that, like, they've flattened the curve in Korea because they have a better long-term care system. I've I found news in English uh, about how there are outbreaks in South Korea as well in long-term care facilities. Um, but just the lack of, of doing anything. Like, this is what I find the most frustrating. Like, the biggest social policy that that they implemented off the bat was closing schools. Yeah. Which is great. I mean, that's, that's yeah, kids are, are germ bags. But I mean, how many children have direct contact with people living in long-term care facilities? I suspect not that many. More, definitely more people in the ages of 40 to 70 have contact than than young children. And so where were the massive policy changes related specifically to long-term care funding? Why, Why in the fuck has this not been a question asked to the prime minister? Why is there no national discussion, no national strategy, no national vision, no suggestions being made uh, that, oh, we hope that the provinces do X and Y and Z within long-term care facilities. It's it's just like, oh, that's a provincial issue, so we're not going to touch it. Even though they're totally in, an, in a gray area, they're outside of the Canada Health Act, 
And they're providing like the most important care, like they're providing care at a time in people's lives when they need the most care. <laughs> like, Yeah, look, I mean, at some point, we're probably going to have to have a long discussion about uh, just generally uh, the media and what is being discussed and what's not being discussed out of all of this. Um, because, yeah, you're right. That's something that you know, why isn't that being asked uh, to the prime minister? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And everyone who told me on Twitter, that's because of the Constitution. I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> yeah. Don't answer me like that. I, I've no. read the Constitution. Thank you. I mean, get it, get an imagination and then get back to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the state has treated people poorly in a lot of different ways for a long time. Um, and so we're just seeing an extension of that. It's really amazing to be living in a time where, like, all of the myths of liberalism are, are exposing themselves to be a lie. And um, and one of the, the things that has also continued have been police shootings. Police shootings and policing in general. And policing, oh my God, the number of fines that people are getting. I mean, I read an article that a dad in Oakville got a $800 fine for being out with his three kids. It just, <laughs> it's, like, it's so ridiculous. It's like, if you want to give police something to do right now, you're going to see an uptick in the level of all of the harrowing things that we see from police. Because when police are bored, they, they you know... <laughs> They hurt us. So, like, I, you know, I I was telling Nora before that we we turned on the recording. And so now I will tell you people, um, L.A. is so weird right now because there's... um, there's been a new ordinance. It is now a rule that you must have a mask if you leave your house, if you're doing anything. So most, if you're going grocery shopping, you have to have a mask to get served. It is it is a rule in the city or county of Los Angeles, which I haven't quite figured out what the difference between those two is yet. It's all very technical. Um, but it's a rule where I live that you need to have a mask on when you leave your house. Now, recognizing that masks are in short supply, a mask can mean a scarf around your face uh, or like, you know, a turtleneck that's pulled up. It's just you, you essentially just have to have your face covered. And for anyone who watched uh, the new HBO Watchmen with <laughs> Regina King uh, leading that cast, brilliant, by the way, loved it. Um, that's what LA looks like right now. There's more police out because they have to enforce this rule and there's just cars everywhere and police everywhere. And, you know, they're all in their police uniforms. Their masks aren't yellow like they are in Watchmen. They're black, but it is, it's wild. It it looks like I exist in an episode of the Watchmen and that's pretty fucking scary. Anyway, that's just an anecdote. There's there's more to talk about with respect to police and how they they are the wrong approach to try to make things work um, the way they need to work with respect to this uh, pandemic. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it just seems uh, like a point worth repeating that, look, If you want people to follow the rules, you have to change the policies that you have entrenched over decades that make it difficult for people to follow 
the rules. A lot of those those policies are economic. Um, the the difficulty that people have in following the rules often have to do with how they make money. If you don't make it easy for people to stay at home uh, and still afford their next meal, then you will have a, some difficulty uh, with enforcing this law, uh, any laws related to physical distancing. And what's not going to help is having the police enforce those laws because those people who are living in a precarity, economic precarity, are still going to be living in economic precarity. And the police enforcing those laws, uh, you know, result in just a few things. One, you get a fine from people who can't afford that fine anyway with the economy tanking and uh, most likely the reason that they're out um, being having something to do with the, uh, their own personal economy. Or two, those people end up uh, detained and incarcerated in places where uh, hello, uh, the outbreak is really bad <laughs> and continues to worsen in those places. So policing this pandemic is not the solution. However, our politicians have certainly turned to policing the pandemic as a solution that they want to try out. Yeah, the, the, the weird side effect of lockdown has been um, emergency rooms are less full. People are not getting as hurt, which makes a lot of sense, right? Especially if like construction sites are closed or, I mean, like walking around, you can't do that very much. You can't do extreme sports. You can't go to the bar. I mean, there's a lot of things that might bring someone to an emergency room. And so they've been a lot more quiet, which I imagine also means that the police have found it a bit more quiet as well. And with all of the attention that is being placed on coronavirus and on um uh, like the the numbers of people who've died and what's happening in the daily updates, I imagine that police are feeling like they uh, can get away with uh, things, uh, including murder. And so in the last week in Canada, there have been several shootings that have resulted in someone dying. Um, and the, the first two that I want to um, mention uh, both happened in Winnipeg and they happened in the same night. And one of the victims was a girl, was a 16-year-old girl. Aisha Hudson was 16 years old. Uh, she was allegedly driving a car that had someone inside of it who had just robbed a liquor store. And um, the police shot and killed her. The same night, they shot and killed a 36-year-old man. Uh, I mean, Winnipeg police have a pretty bad uh, reputation as it is. But this just seems... Uh, I mean, horrifying, uh, horrifying for the families. The families can't even mourn together. They can't grieve together because of the current conditions of the of the coronavirus lockdowns. And fighting for justice becomes even that much harder because you cannot gather together, which is a really important part of condemning uh, police violence is taking to the streets, um, making sure people see the, the face and the name behind the statistic. And that that person uh, is is linked to the community that loved in this case that loved her. Um, there has been some backlash, but I, I imagine that Winnipeg police will just continue being shitty. And um, and so my heart goes out fully to the to the family and the friends of both victims. 
And it's just, it's a really difficult time, I think, for uh, us trying to figure out how to fight against this kind of injustice. I know there has been GoFundMe set up for both of those uh, for in this situation. So definitely take a look online if you're interested in, in donating um, to help with, um, you know, whatever the families are asking for on those on those pages. Um, but they weren't even the only ones that happened. Yeah, there was there's a uh, another case in Brampton, uh, DeAndre Campbell, a man who uh, was having some mental health issues by some reports. He called the police to his home um, where the police in, in an interaction with him. And this is not his first interaction with police in the midst of some sort of uh, crisis. Uh, but, you know, he calls police to his home. The police arrive. They tase him a couple times, I think. Uh, his sister is reported as saying that he was on the ground um, when police then shoot and kill him. At, I just, you know, this has been so much of my work. We're uh, through BLM supporting uh, the GoFundMe page has been set up by the family. Uh, we can put that in the show notes as well so that you can take a look if you are able to assist uh, with the expenses. Uh, please assist the family there. It just, this is not a good time for the police to be out enforcing anything related to, to COVID, but also dealing with some of the mental health issues that may be arising that might be on the rise uh, because of the the shift in a living experience that people are experiencing right now the 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 shift uh in how we live might have um a harrowing effect uh on mental health and you know i don't i don't know if that's the case uh for deandre campbell but it doesn't matter uh, the police should not have killed him. I just, I don't understand uh, in what world where someone is on the ground as a result of being tased, as a result of already having some sort of contact with a uh, uh, a device that can be fatal, um, then gets shot. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and again, you know, I just, how is this happening even mm -hmm. still? right now it's just uh you know another group of people in terms of people who are having some uh who have mental health um concerns who are i believe going to be or are currently not being taken care of uh well with respect to this crisis and uh, because part of that is because we've never treated uh, this group of people well in society. And these things can stand to get worse mm -hmm. in a situation like this. Well, a couple of days after that happened, uh, the OPP entered uh, someone's residence in Temiskaming Shores in northeastern Ontario. A 43-year-old man was asked to leave. He didn't leave. And two police officers shot and killed him. Jesus. Yeah. And, and there's no further information. I mean, the Canadian press story is as thin as the SIU press release. And so, yeah, like as all kinds of medical treatments are um, are being pushed off or delayed or canceled, 
Uh, that that does include mental health uh, treatments as well. I mean, there's an in- incredibly sad story in Quebec City this past weekend of of someone who's uh, shock therapy treatments, which was the only thing that's helped her, uh, her helped her mental health at all, uh, have all been canceled because of, of of COVID. They said either she needs to move into the hospital and live there to get the, the treatments, or they need to cancel it uh, for for safety. Um, and so there's no doubt that there will be spin-off effects on people's mental health, whether it's because of the pressures of living in quarantine or because of the 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 your own treatments being pushed off or because of the underfunding of a system that has already been there forever or because of the racism uh, within the system that means that idle cops are just more interested in looking to shoot. I don't know. We have to be aware of what happens in society as this crisis continues. And I mean, our politicians are trying to get us to focus on the economy. You know, every day there's like some some politicians saying that the economy is going to be open soon. Don't worry. In, in Quebec, our premier even said that schools will be open by May 4th, which is like May fantasy 4th? land. Uh, they want us thinking about oh the economy because they think that the economy is the most important thing. I mean, and then the, then the heron in, in news broke. And so then it was like, oh, actually, you know what? We've got Jesus. some crises we have to deal with. So I doubt he's going to say that again. But it's too easy for us to just focus on when this is going to end and, and wanting to know when this is going to end and asking the prime minister, when does he think it's going to end? It's like every journalist that's done that and wasted their question with that question can fucking fuck themselves. Because what we really need to understand is that this is not ending. Like this will not end until there's a vaccine uh, or it will not end until there's effective antiviral. The, 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 the optimistic take on that is a couple of months. <laughs> and the reality take is like 18 months, a year and a half. And so what we actually need is this, this, like, how do we live well in a situation that is totally bizarre and not normal and that our, our, our society has not been built to sustain? I mean, there are many people that live in long-term care facilities. And so what are those changes that are going to be happening now to make sure that people don't get even more sick or that uh, residents that haven't had an outbreak don't have an outbreak uh, for people who have to move into long-term care from now until uh, from this next six months from now, what are the, the contingency plans there? How are hospitals, are they discharging people into long-term care facilities? This is something else that Quebec has just uh, announced that they're not going to allow hospitals to do because that's something that they did to free up beds was that in an emergency ward, if you wanted a bed, you can discharge someone to an old age facility. <laughs> like Right, right. So we have to start imagining that life is going to continue like this. And so what does that mean for the police? What does that mean for uh, for for our, our own health and wellness? And what do we need to demand from our politicians to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks and that, that we actually can survive this quarantine safely and, you know, in one piece? Yeah, so many, so much of the kind of rhetoric uh, that uh, politicians have picked up on uh, in order to to justify the decisions that they've made is actually quite correct. You know that we have to um, be working together and band together, and uh, you know understand that so much of our movements are um, uh, affect everyone around us that we know and love and people that we don't know and love. And that shit's true. They're not acting in that way. They're the, the policies uh, that they're putting out while saying those things uh, don't exemplify that, but we can exemplify that by actually um, uh, making sure that one, our actions are uh, committed to that place, but two, that we also um, call them out when their actions don't. 
and actions that support policing as a solution to anything that's going on right now and actions that don't um, make systemic changes in our long-term care facilities uh, that are part of the problem um, that is exacerbated by the situation that is going on right now. Those actions are not in in line with this line of, you know, working together and doing it for each other and all of this stuff. It's all, it's all crap if they're not taking care of these systemic issues and repudiating uh, the police as any sort of idea of a solution in a time like this. And so it's upon us uh, to do those things and it's upon us to critique those things. And so, you know, I hope after this podcast... Some approval ratings go down at least a little bit, (laughs) Um, uh, or at least people are talking a little bit more about the ways in which the decisions that our politicians have made can really make this thing, have really made this thing worse, and uh, the decisions that lie ahead have the ability to make this thing either way better or way worse in our lives. And it's important for us to be able to be there, to pay attention, and to be a part of a political conversation around it. 